Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. I'm honored to introduce today my guest, Christina Fonseca, who is a venture partner at the Indico Capital Partners, which happens to be the first Portuguese private venture capital funding investing in Portugal and Spain early stage and tech-focused startups. But prior to becoming a venture partner, Christina was one of the founders of TalkDesk, a cloud-based help desk software that became Portugal's third unicorn after raising a whopping 100 million in Series B funding at a valuation of over a billion dollars in October of 2018. And today I'm going to be talking to her about not only her journey, but also her newest venture, Cleverly.ai, which we are going to be hearing a little bit about. So welcome, Christina. Thank you so much. It's it's really a pleasure. I'm I'm Anita. I'm always humbled to talk technology in Europe, startups, <laughs> and VC. So it's really an honor to to be here today. Excellent, excellent. So I wanted to start off actually by asking you a little bit about your time before TalkDesk. Are there any people or events? I'm curious to understand a little bit about your upbringing, your early days, and if there was any events or people that you think influenced you to become an entrepreneur. Because mm-hmm. I'm not sure that even in today's age, it's, you know, something that people aspire to become. So I'm curious what led you to, to start TalkDesk? Mm-hmm. It's definitely a great question. And and looking back, I think one of the main reasons why I became an entrepreneur was my family. So my family is entrepreneurial, hardworking. My mom is never afraid of doing everything that used to be the man's job in the house outside. First of all, my parents told me I could be whatever I wanted. So I was not restricted by that. And I feel families restrict the choices of their children a lot. So I didn't feel that. I grew up being a curious person and that was what led me to choose to be an engineer. And that was the starting point. And is there anything your parents did to fuel that curiosity? How did they encourage you to go down this path? It's interesting because nothing was very specific. So my parents would, my father is very hands-on. So he would ask me, he has this hobby of reconstructing and, and, and restoring old cars. And I would have to help him. I didn't like that very much, but I was forced to do it. So I learned to be curious, to, to, to listen to technical terms, terms and, and things to appreciate that. And then I was given, I was given responsibility by my parents and, and little challenges. I remember being 12 years old and my, my father would say, can you please pick up that phone call for me uh, and say these and that. And like, no one likes to do that, right? No kid wants to pick up the, the parent's phone and, yeah. and play the secretary, but through being out of the comfort zone in these little situations, I think ended up being amazing lessons for my future. Wow. It's almost like they treated you like an adult, even when you were young. Exactly. They didn't kind of baby you around. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, that's, that's really good advice for me. I have two little kids and I try to do that and now I can justify it to them a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So obviously TalkDesk was quite a few years ago, so I'm not going to go into talk desk, but 
I wanted to ask at least two questions. So the first one is, when you think about your journey at TalkDesk from concept to Series B and beyond, what do you feel was the hardest stage of the company's growth and why? Mm -hmm. I would say the hardest stage was when we went from 30 people to 150 in a year. And that happened was that your, before your series B or at series B? Where, where it was, it was around series A. Okay. So we raised series A in between. Uh, we were growing very fast and basically we were trying to catch up because we didn't grow as much in the early stage. Honestly, mm. we didn't know mm. what we were doing. So we were a little bit afraid of just hiring too many people. We didn't know where to find them. At first we were a small and committed group of engineers that was all we needed. We yeah. were engineers. We, we knew how to work with these people. And then we were forced to grow very fast. It was challenging because you need to pass a lot of context to whoever is new at the mm. company so they can do a good job and you can set them up for success. Plus having two main offices, one in, in Portugal and one in the US, uh, was also an additional challenge. Mm. And People in the company didn't understand what was going on around them. That was very, very challenging. Like hiring the right people, onboarding them properly, setting them up for success and keeping the company on the right track was very, very hard. From a, 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 It drained my energy. It, it was very challenging. So now you're looking at starting your next venture. What do you think you would do differently to address that challenge in, in your next time around? It's a good question. I think, for example, at the early stage, you, you knowing more, you put more of the pieces that were missing at the time in place at the beginning. For example, at Stalkfest, at this stage, we were seven people. And now at Cleverly, which is my next venture, we are 15. And we are quite an early stage, but we understand we need business development, we need marketing, we need data science, you need design. So we have a more complete group from the beginning. Hopefully we won't be forced to scale in the future. I mean, it's still going to happen, but I think it's going to be, it's going to be different and it creates other problems. So first you bring the chaos and then you need a little bit of time to put the house in order. There's not the right or a right or a wrong way of doing things. It's just different ways. But I think that hyper growth is, is challenging and yeah. I don't want to yeah. read that so aggressively. <laughs> okay. And then my other question relating to talk desk was when you start something, it's like your baby, you've started it. I think it's very hard for someone to step away. We actually, in one of my previous ventures had one of the founders step away and it was really hard. I don't actually know what happened with talk desk, but obviously talk desk is still there and you aren't part of it right now. And actively at least any advice that you would give to other founders that are considering moving away from something that they've started. There are several dimensions to it, of course, but I think it starts with us per personally being able to detach ourselves from a company, mm. which everyone should do. I mean, we are not a company. We are not a project. Uh, we are not the result of our work. And being comfortable and assuming that is the first step. So like, I'm happy no matter the work I'm engaged with. My family is there to support me. And maybe that was one of the strong reasons if I make the wrong decision, because at the end of the day, it's all about our own decisions. I mean, 
like I made a decision, I prepared, I worked with, with a couple of key team members of the company to make sure the transition was, was going to work uh, smoothly. Everything was going to be in place. I worked with my investors, but at the end of the day, it was a decision that I made and lots and lots of people didn't understood. I was totally okay with my decision. Hmm. And it, it ended up being, uh, I mean, I was able to focus on other projects I really wanted to do and prove to myself that I'm not that project and I want to do other great things in life. So it's okay to, to like start something, impact the society in a way and then do something else. Hmm. So I would say that's the challenging part is, is you waking up one day and being prepared for not having emails, people coming to you, asking for help, mm. you being in the spotlight, if you're okay yeah. with that. And, or if you really want to take that step, if you prepare for that, then everything is going to be fine. Uh, of course, I'm not going to say it didn't take me a couple of months to decompress because the mm. journey was so intense. Mm. Uh, I really had to take a, a couple of months off. I traveled, I studied, eventually I was able to recover my energy and, and be able to start from zero because, because I was really very tired and that's mm. something founders cannot forget. Mm. I sacrificed a lot of my health, my well uh, my mental sanity a little bit. I sacrificed a lot of hours. I didn't sleep and that, that was not sustainable. Mm. So I had to force myself to take a step back and start with a different framework in terms of adult life, which, mm-hmm. is, which is how I explain it. I started my adult life, basically running a company, not knowing what I was doing and trying to catch up. So I dedicated all of my energy to that. And, and I forgot a lot of things that are very important in life. So I had mm. to take a step back and, and build that more sustainable framework. Yeah, I, I think that's really good advice for entrepreneurs listening. And I'm sure regardless of when you do it, it it's still a challenge. It takes a, a huge adjustment, not just for the founder who's leaving, but for the company itself to, to start to do things without that person there. All right. So now I know you're in the process of launching your next venture. I would love to hear a little bit more about what that venture is, whatever you can share. And then we can go from there on other questions I have. So very simple. Cleverly is solving a problem that I'm very familiar with. Basically, still in the call center and customer service industry, most of the work that's done is manual work. And that can be fixed with technology and make everyone's lives better, including the one of the managers, the one of the agents that are like work under pressure. I would say it's one of the worst jobs ever because Mm. once we customers contact support, we don't want to contact support. And the person that's at the other side also doesn't want to be there. So (laughs) it's, it's, it's a little bit of a sad situation. So we do that by, by eliminating all the manual work that exists in customer service, either with triaging requests, building the most complete knowledge management platform for support teams, and then using that to assist agents in replying to customers, assisting customers in finding the information themselves and automating very simple uh, and easy requests. So if I think about the space customer service management, what is it that's currently solved by the players like Zendesk and Gainsight and all these different customer success, customer service software? What's the gap 
that you're seeing that Cleverly is trying to now um, solve? Very simple. So all those companies that you mentioned are cloud solutions to enforce a process of replying to customers. Now okay. enter 2020. So, so, so the software that's being developed today should be intelligent. So it should not just enforce the process, but should have intelligence embedded. For example, with the most modern and advanced software, an agent that sits down every day to reply to customers, that person still doesn't know what to reply. Still doesn't know, oh, where is this answer I'm looking for? And, and that was used a million times before. So that's one component. And then I believe we are again in a transition. Uh, maybe 20 years ago, it started the cloud. Everything moved to the cloud. So then it started, then came the mobile era and everything was mobile. Uh, right. Today, every single piece of software is going to be intelligent. What does that mean? If you put Cleverly on top of Zendesk or Salesforce or whatever, uh, when a customer email comes in, we tell you what that email is about. We tell you this is a refund request. This is a request for information. This is an out-of-office reply. And you will treat these different types of requests differently. Some you will reply automatically. Oh, thank you so much for applying to our, to, to, it's great to hear that you want to work with us, but please check our careers page. Don't bug support. Support is, is, is busy doing other things. If someone received a damaged product, for example, you want to address that right away because that's terrible and, and it can be a revenue driver and you can lose that customer in the future. So Software needs to have these capabilities embedded. Like we need to help customer service teams get all the knowledge, all the information in a single place, which is today in spreadsheets or, or, or nowhere. So agents know what to reply. When you have that, you can give also that information to customers right away. So they, they don't need to wait and they don't need to contact support. So we, we felt that was the need to build a piece of software that would integrate with existing solutions that allow you to enforce the process, but to add an intelligent layer on top. Interesting. And so is this something that can then work with other customer service solutions? Is it a layer on top of other tools that customers are using? Yes. So basically we okay. integrate with, with other solutions like Salesforce, Zendesk, Freshdesk, Intercom. And we allow companies to like with one click to plug to Cleverly, we will use your data to train a couple of machine, machine learning models and help your support get to the next level. It's interesting because there's also lots of platforms arising in the market where I give you the platform, you as a manager need to go and train the platform and train the algorithm and understand what you want to teach uh, the machine learning models. We do it for, for, for the customer. So we don't deliver you a technical platform that you can use to put your support in the next level. We yeah. deliver all the trained algorithms, everything. So you as a manager will just take advantage from it, like from day one um, and really get the benefits. Interesting. So you will take the customer's data to train your algorithm. So it'll be different for each customer. And then you'll give them a solution back, which is trained on their data. 
Yes, of course. I see. But at the same time, we already have um, a strong base. For example, I'll tell you, we, we can identify today more than 800 intents that don't vary that much. Bring me a business. Maybe I'm, I'm sure they will have like new intents that we will have to explore. But the base is pretty much the same of other companies and other industries that we have that we're working on with right now. Fascinating, isn't it? So many different products and yet the customer's request and help are something that you can see um, patterns across all of them. That's really neat. Okay, so, you know, I think you're in a very unique position, Christina, to be able to reflect on how you built products in the past versus now, having done TalkDesk and having been, you know, intimately involved in building that product eight to 10 years ago, and then now, cleverly, if you could talk about what has changed in terms of product development from the past to now, and maybe we can break it down into different segments. So maybe we can start with engineering and coding and then design and UX and then maybe process and knowledge management. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can look at it in different slivers, but maybe we can start with engineering and coding. What do you see differently? So what I see differently, mainly from these two experiences is, for example, bring data science. These days, every single company has data scientists is using um, data to take advantage of data that we've been collecting in the last years. That brings additional challenges because these people have a background that's not exactly the same as the engineers. So they are mathematicians, Mm. they're from statistics, they have like PhDs, and they're really focused on the science and testing the algorithms and the solutions that then can bring value to in a product. However, the process of transforming this research into code that can be used in, in a real product is challenging. And these teams sometimes, even being technical teams, they don't understand each other and they don't speak with each other that frequently. So you assume data science is coming up with with the latest research, piece of research, and then engineers expect that to be available somehow, but there's still a lot of work to be done to productize that. And I would say it takes a lot of communication and alignment for you to have a technical team of engineers and data scientists that can develop science and and generate value and bring that value to life. Mm -hmm. I've seen lots and lots of companies struggling with this. I've seen teams that are in the cave for two years, developing the latest stuff, and then they lost connection with the real problem. I mean, that happens and, and that's very sad. I mean, you just get very involved and, and, and excited about the research, but you lose track of the problem that you are solving. And yeah, I, 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 this communication with engineering and productizing work from data science is something that was not there 10 years ago. So is that something that you've seen companies do well, or have you yourself found a way to address that? Um, my head of research, she's amazing. And, and she, she's always telling me, look, my previous boss went to Harvard to understand how this was done. It was super hard. <laughs> I, I would say all leaders are trying to figure out the best approach. 
I would say it's communication, is alignment of teams, is having all the technical people understand what's the end goal you're contributing mm-hmm. to and the business problem you are solving. So you need to make, make that very aware on, on a regular basis. I would say we are trying, but we are a small team, right? Once, once this, this grows massively, it will be more challenging. I don't have a, a recipe for yep. success yet, but that's one of the things I'm, I'm working on. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, at least you are aware of it and you've prioritized this as something that you know you need to coordinate on. So that's probably... Because I see lots and lots of companies, big and small, struggling. So I'm sure nailing this can be a huge advantage. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what about in terms of design and UX? What's the change that you've seen? So on that side, for example, TalkDesk, the first three, four years, it was built by engineers. So software mm-hmm. didn't have to be beautiful or it had to work, right? If it solved the yeah. problem, you would use it. These days, I think everyone is way more aware and sensitive to things being easy to use, our attention spans have gone down significantly. So if something is not easy to use and requires a lot of effort to onboard, people are just going to move away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's moved up in priority. That's what you're saying. Yes. But in terms of the actual UX and design, it's the same principles and the way that it was developed is similar. I would say so. Yeah, it's the same principles, but it's just, it needs to be a higher priority. Otherwise, Mm. adoption of the solution is going to be lower or, or, or take more time. Of course. Yeah. Okay. What else do you think has changed? So we talked about UX, we talked about data science and engineering. Like... Those are really great points. There's nothing else I would I would really highlight. But in general, another trend has been the distributed teams. Ten years ago, there were some companies that were ahead and had remote teams and everyone was distributed. But those were the exceptions these days because of uh, the scarcity of mm. specific talent and positions. And, mm. and I mean, technical companies learned and started having to have to hire the best talent, no matter their, their location. And I think companies learned to organize themselves better, communicating with remote team, team members, be more diverse. And that's a change that also happened in, in the last decade. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is definitely a fundamental shift. I think before people definitely prioritized location and physical proximity as being a critical success factor to building good products and building a successful company, especially in the initial stages where you need so much more coordination. But I think now the mindset is more that we can make remote hubs and we should go wherever the talent is. This actually brings me to another point that you had mentioned when we first talked about, which is that AI is now part of everything you build. And that also fundamentally changes how you think about product development and how you expect it to scale. That segues nicely into the fact that because AI is so fundamental, you need to go wherever the talent is. You can't be limited by location. Maybe you can comment on those two points. 
So for sure, and that's valid for AI and for everything else. One of my biggest challenges at TalkDesk, having the product and engineering teams in Lisbon, was to relocate senior management and people that had already scaled tech companies and was able to come and join the team to bring a little bit more expertise, a different vision. And at the time, no one wanted to relocate to Portugal. So <laughs> that was hard for us. So we brought some people from the US and, and eventually we, we were able to, to solve the problem. And also the world has been changing. And now uh, relocating to Portugal is, is something that people look for. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it made everyone's life easier. But in regards to everything having AI, definitely, and it goes in line with what I mentioned before, 20 years ago, cloud, 10 years ago, mobile. These days, everything needs to have AI embedded and intelligence embedded. But again, the, the process of developing those types of products, it's not, I can tell an engineer or I can plan with a team, look, this is going to take three months to build and we will going to have a mobile app ready to mm -hmm. use and ready mm -hmm. to go. No, I mean, with AI, it's okay. I have here like a couple of ideas. I think we can take these data and get these insights out of the data, but there's absolutely no guarantee that that's going to work. <laughs> yeah. So that's why one, like, if, if you look at the startup landscape in the AI space, there's lots of companies that end up failing because mm -hmm. Like you, you have an assumption and sometimes technology cannot deliver what's mm. needed in order to make that a product. And there's another interesting comment that I would like to make, which is about the types of businesses where you can put AI on top. Mm. For example, customer service. I'll recommend replies to agents and I'll recommend replies to customers. But if I get it right, 85% of the time, that's very good already. Hmm. If I'm applying AI to accounting and I get that right 85% of the time, that's not acceptable. Yeah. So we see this AI opportunity and we tend to think, okay, I'm going to do this with AI because I'm doing a lot of manual work and this is stupid. I hmm. get it. Hmm. But AI cannot solve every single problem. I wish accounting was done automatically, but I wouldn't trust a machine because there's like a lot of details that, that, that the machine can still not get. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a really good point to make on AI itself. Okay. So I know that remote location, and we talked about it just now a little bit, but do you have any advice on how to make it work? How can people, companies, entrepreneurs make harnessing talent regardless of location and remote development hubs work well? The answer to that, in my opinion, is communication. And communication uh, is around aligning teams, having people collaborate, being organized in, in the online world. So you need to document things, you need to write a lot. So I, I, I would say it, it comes down to communication and requires everyone to be in that mindset, not just leadership teams, but also every employee working in a remote setting. You need to be aware of 
hard it is uh, because you need to communicate because uh, mm. there's things that are lost in translation if you're just writing or if you are communicating over video and then you really need to get people together so yeah. then they create those bonds but it's not easy uh, personally as a small team i still believe in us being able to every now and then sit together and work in an office but i mean in, in the long term, we need distributed offices, we need remote people. And so, that, so that's not an option anymore these days, I would say. Yeah, I've, I've been remote in so many different teams. The underlying or the operative word is that in the online world that you said, people communicate, we did video calls and we had maybe more frequent meetings. So that was something that I've seen done. But I think the key to making remote work is the documenting and being aware that people are more remote than they are physical and making sure that you're set up for doing brainstorming, the setup for doing follow-up, et cetera, is created for the online world rather than for the offline world. I think that's the difference is people just use video just to do the meeting, but everything else was done in the offline way versus if you want to make it work, you need to think remote first and then the offline for a second. Which, which for us is not that hard, but if you think about bigger corporates that just went remote because of the pandemic or even government services where people are not, not supposed to work remote. Like in those cases, I've seen systems that won't, don't work properly. People that have never communicated with their colleagues in the online way. That's where the challenge is. I yeah. would say for the startup community, you went home, you work remotely. Okay. Like you need to, to, to make an effort to align everyone, but still you're prepared. You were born in an online era. Think leadership that used to see people every day at their desks working and now they're not in control anymore and they need to trust their employees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a big shift. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about go-to-market. Do you feel product development differs if the product is made for a DevOps as your customer versus a business user? as your customer, like how you develop it, does it differ and how you maybe take it even to market? Totally. I mean, the best example I can think of, this is a little bit of a joke, but if you think Salesforce, no user of Salesforce would buy Salesforce. <laughs> it's the managers, <laughs> right? True, <laughs> true, very uh, true. So developing software for the manager or for the end user is different. I would say in a lot of areas, especially in the consumer side or, or specific industries, you need to, you need to develop for the end user, having the manager in mind as well, because, because users these days, like you review, you talk about things online, think about Slack. I remember at Talkfest, we were using HeapChat, yep. which was an alternative to Slack. And suddenly I had 70 people saying, we are on Slack. We want to use Slack. And heat chat was like $2 per month and per user and Slack was seven, but all my team was there. So I was forced to pay. This is a product that was developed for the user. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that was able to drive like a lot of adoption. So ideally you do both, but there are certain types of software and industries where developing for the manager is enough because those are the decision makers uh, and, and people have no choice. Customer service is one of those. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So how are you thinking about taking cleverly.ai, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to market? Where are you in the process? Do you have product market fit? Do you have a few customers? Where are you? So because of everything I mentioned before, being an AI-driven pro- product where we had to test the technology before being able to confidently assume, okay, like this is the path uh, we are super confident this is going to work, which we've tested and, and we are quite confident to say right now. So we've been developing the product with uh, a couple of interesting companies in order to mm-hmm. test the technology and building while we build our self-service platform. So mm-hmm. we've been engaging with, with, with customers in a very direct way. So you cannot go and sign up and do everything yourself. So it's, it still needs to have our involvement. And our go-to-market strategy was basically to integrate with all these platforms that are already widely used and adopted mm-hmm. and put our, our technology on top. So that has been the way. We are a small team. Most of our team yeah. is technical. We are still in, in, in the product development phase, although we okay. have customers that go from banks, uh, retailers, uh, e-commerce companies, a lot of like insurance. Uh, like we have yeah. uh, a lot of different industries also to, to test how broad the product can be and because we don't want to build something that's only vertical specific. So we've been fortunate to, to have like a different, to be working with a different range of companies and, and types of customers along all these integrations. Uh, and this is the base of our go-to-market strategy. I see. And are you going to use a direct sales force or do you think it's going to be self-service, like, you know, marketing driven, people will just come and download it and start using it? It's more sales driven than marketing driven for sure. Okay. So we already have a, a sales team and we are exploring that. But of course, these days, like standing out requires advanced marketing. So we need both. Uh, and actually, we are looking for, for someone to be responsible for our marketing efforts. So if anyone is really interested and maybe wants to move to Portugal, <laughs> here is a great opportunity. Well, I'm sure there are loads of people that are going to jump at that opportunity. What about uh, pricing? Have you figured out pricing or, or how do you go about determining pricing? That's the question all my startups come to me and say, hey, Christina, I need help figuring out pricing. And my answer is always, look, I don't have a magic formula because that's, that's very difficult. And the way you do it is you test. We like to attach our pricing to the value we bring. And because with Cleverly, you can save time and money, the math is quite easy to do. So we've been testing. We don't want to charge per per resolution and we we don't want to have a a pricing model that doesn't allow managers to predict how much a solution is, 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 will be able to cost. So we charge a a platform fee and then we charge per agent pricing. Mm. Like we think this is predictable. We think it's easy to see the value that we bring and calculate the ROI, which in at a time where, the world is a little bit chaotic. Lots of companies are delaying investments. Either a solution that you bring shows the value mm-hmm. for your company, or maybe that's going to be delayed. So we've been very fortunate to close new customers during this pandemic time because the benefit of the solution, especially these days where support volumes are growing in a couple of sectors. Mm. Yeah. How has the pandemic affected your company 
And have you made any changes because of the pandemic and and the opportunities or challenges it brought with it? Mm -hmm. So the main changes have been hiring wise. I felt people were more reluctant to, to change jobs. So that was interesting. We, we were hiring for a couple of positions and the pandemic like delayed things a little bit in terms of customers. We've had good surprises from companies we were engaging with, with in the past that now said, okay, like I need to do this right now because like the, 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 the volume of support I'm going to get in the next months is going to explode. We had customers whose volume exploded, like imagine like doing like six times the having six times one of one of our customers is Decathlon. They had six times the the, the volume wow. the pandemic because of course everyone wanted to have exercise without cleverly like I honestly have no idea how they would have handled. We have big banks, big retailers that we were engaged with and converted during the pandemic because again, same thing, everyone goes remote, support is on fire and you don't see the situation getting better. Some other companies are more reluctant to do new projects, but overall, I would say the pandemic was, was, was a good, very good surprise for us. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm glad it worked out well for you in this case, at least. The other question that obviously startups ask all the time is around funding to where you are in your funding and what is your philosophy on when you should seek funding or how you should seek funding and any advice on funding? Mm -hmm. It's a great question because I play entrepreneur and investor at the same time. So I know the rules of the game very well on both sides. (laughs) So VC funding is amazing for when you are in a growth trajectory or you have a base that you know can scale. One of the reasons why I didn't raise VC money early on was because I was not sure all these data science stuff, all these assumptions in regards to tech being able to solve this problem, the way we believed it should be solved. Like, I was not sure that was possible. So I prefer to validate before (laughs) going and telling my investors Hey, I'm going to change the world and build this amazing company. And I've, I have everything figured out. Hmm. <laughs> so I delayed that a little bit. We were very fortunate to get a EU grant, an European Union grant last hmm. year. So we've been developing products with money from that grant and some personal investment. Mm-hmm. And we will, we will, we are still okay in our trajectory, but we will for sure raise VC money when we are prepared and when we have good metrics and the metrics that will put us in in the best position to have a successful VC trajectory. Nice, nice. So, so the advice is that try and have as much validation and metrics that show growth before you go to VC so that you can get a better valuation and less expensive capital. Yeah. So that's one angle for sure. Okay. Okay. If you have better metrics and you have more, more validation, the, the, the conditions at which you raise are better, but Mm -hmm. overall, like if you go to a VC, I mean, please make sure you know, you have something that's ready to scale, especially being a deep tech company. Like you cannot fake, 
you know, like growth and you cannot inflate growth if you don't have product market fit. Mm. Today, I would say we have product market fit. Like that's, mm. I mean, there's lots of pieces that, that we want to work on, but we found something that brings value to customers that they understand right away and that they were, are willing to pay for. So correct. <laughs> that, yeah. that's one. Bef- before we had that, I would be very uncomfortable to raise money and try to scale without having a solid foundation. Like mm. We had that when, when we started raising more and more money at TalkDesk, we had a strong foundation. And now I cleverly, like, I want to make sure that's in place. So mm-hmm. then we don't bring chaos uh, and try to assemble the plane while we, we are flying already. Yeah. But, but just to clarify, when you say, you know, have the fundamentals and be ready to scale before you go to VC, you're talking then about series A and beyond, right? There are a lot of companies that focus on seed and they're helping companies to figure out the product market fit and get them ready for a series A. So that's different. Would that be correct? Yes. However, like you're, you're totally right, but it's the founder's job right? And as a VC, I invest in pre-seed to seed to series A companies, right? So you put money in the founders and you bet on their ability to nail a specific industry and build a product that the market wants and is competitive worldwide. So if I'm building a SaaS solution, like, okay, I have insights. I know exactly what I want to build. I just need this money. I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. If you are developing a deep tech product with way more technical uncertainty, I mean, as a founder, I cannot say with the same confidence as building a SaaS product, hey, this is it. This is what I'm, what I'm building. It takes yeah. this time and this money. For the reason that I mentioned before, I cannot go to a research team and tell them, look, I need you to come up with this. How much time do you need? Six months? Okay, good. I'll wait six months and I'll give you all the resources you need. It doesn't work like that because it's deep tech. So I've, I've delayed raising, raising from VCs because I wanted to have the tech part figured out, mm. at least the core of the technology. Mm. So yeah, that was okay. Okay. So, so in your, in your world, what's the ideal list you should have before you go to a VC? You mentioned you should have like maybe proven out your product to show it works. Maybe a few customers that will, that have, that can give you a reference to say, yes, if this product exists and can do this, I will buy it. Like what are the things in your checklist that you need to have before you should go raise VC funding Mm -hmm. from your perspective? That depends a lot. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> there's, as you mentioned, there's different types of investors that v- there, there's VCs that invest yeah. uh, pre-seed, right? One other K, you go to an accelerator program. It's a different type of experience. So every company is a different company, but I'll tell you as an investor, what I look for. Uh, yeah. Great founders that can figure things out. Mm-hmm. A market that's interesting enough. And a founder that's able to show me progress gets me excited about a company. Mm. So if you come to me and say, Hey, Christina, I'm building this. Here is what I have. And I ask you, okay, 
what are your main doubts? What are the main assumptions that you haven't tested yet? Have you tested that in the UK or the US, which are competitive markets? I would love to see X, Y, Z. If mm. two weeks or a month after they come to me and say, Hey, Christina, here is what I tested. Here is what I learned. Here is what I iterated as, as, as a result. That will get me excited because I see no one wakes up and does everything right every day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you'd better have the capabilities to test things, learn with your mistakes and iterate quick. So for me, that's the, the, the more important, but as a founder building a deep tech product, I didn't raise at the beginning because I wanted to test the technology. Now that's tested. Now we were fortunate to get other sources of capital, yeah. but we will, we will get back in the, in the VC game very soon. Okay, cool. Well, we're almost at the end of the show, Christina. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about things outside of your work, like what books do you like to read? Are there any books, fiction or nonfiction that made an impression on you that you would like to share? So I, I, I usually say uh, a little bit in a joke tone that I'm too boring and I only read <laughs> business stuff and entrepreneurship <laughs> and startup related books, maybe because this talk desk journey was so intense. I really mm. had to, to gather as much information as possible from, from the outside world. So I read all the books that are... I mean, which one was your favorite? Like, which one did you feel really helped? in your different it, it, it depends so my goodreads yeah. account has uh, a lot a lot of like uh, the lists yeah. but if one that surprised me was this book called play bigger which mm, the title yeah. is i know play bigger yeah play category bigger, creation exactly. it's about category creation and i think every time we start a new company we have the possibility of mm defining and rewriting the rules of a specific industry, uh, creating a new category and a new way of doing business. So for founders that have not read Play Bigger yet, I would really recommend it. It's, it's quite inspiring and, and, and insightful. Nice. Okay. Any, any fiction books that you've read lately? Maybe when you were taking a break? Not really. No. Again, like I'm this boring person that's in business mode all the time. Oh, <laughs> well, you obviously have a, have a mission and a goal that you're pursuing. So that's, that's inspiring in itself. So, okay. What about, what do you do to de-stress, to relax? What's your, you know, go-to way of relaxing? I was going to say read business books, but, but, <laughs> but you want like that. <laughs> No, I mean, I do, I do what everyone does. I, I, I spend time with family, friends. I go outside. Yeah. I like okay. to run by the river. I like decompress and do what, what everyone else does. Like really nice. simple stuff. Okay. Okay. What about your favorite city in Europe? My favorite city in Europe? I have to say Lisbon, right? Um, yeah, of course. It's an amazing city with... Lots of diversity. It's a city with personality. I mean, it has the river. It has uh, great weather. So, Lisbon. Yes, absolutely. Well, Christina, we've come to the end of the show. Thank you so much for being on my show. I, I feel like I learned so much. A little bit about you, which I, I really enjoyed in the beginning. And, and so much about how to think about developing and starting your company. And I look forward to your 
launch of Cleverly. Sounds like you found a good niche and and a problem to solve. So I look forward to seeing how your journey grows in the in the months and years to come. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you so much, Anita. It's really a pleasure. 